श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय ग्रंथराज श्रीमद् भागवतम की जय इवनिंग एवरीवन सो कंटिन्यूइंग आवर डिस्कशन ऑफ श्रीमद् भागवतम वी कम टुनाइट टू A verse that concludes the section on Avatar Tattva in the third uh, chapter of the first canto. It concludes the section on Avatar Tattva with a kind of a, with like a, it's a, a falls to the, a verse that speaks about the fruit of having discussed all that we've discussed thus far. What will be the result of that? And uh, then the text continues to the end of the chapter, uh, basically uh, distinguishing the in a distinguishing matter from consciousness, distinguishing that is to say the forms of the avatars thought to be spiritual and constituted of consciousness, satchit ananda, from a material, either gross or subtle, conception of the Godhead, which is a conception that is put forward in the Bhagavatam in different places as a starting point for some people to get some idea of the personhood of Godhead and to more readily preoccupy themselves with a God-conscious conception. In other words, a imaginary idea that for example, the mountains are the bones of the Godhead's body, the, the, um, the sun is one eye, the moon is the other, there are various descriptions like this of the world which we're readily in touch with and experiencing and so forth and, and, uh, and, and how to think of it in such a way that it promotes thinking of of uh, of God and uh, ultimately the idea that there's consciousness behind matter. So while that idea is put forward, and you can think about it, it's it's fairly interesting. And there are lengthy cut types of explanations or meditations like this given in the text. They are rather easily an easy way, if you will, to start to think about God constantly, which is the whole idea of of the Bhagavatam. Hmm? Because we're without having to think about it, we see the sun, we see the moon, we see the mountains, we see the, the trees, the hair on his body, you know, kind of idea. And so it's a practice that one can engage in. It's actually recommended in the Bhagavatam. It's a lower level of kind of mental preoccupation with uh, God than the higher level, if you will, um, either samadhi, meditation on the beatific form of the Godhead or 
in meditation on the Eightfold, for example, Leela of Krishna, corresponding with the times in our day. So this is a very deep type of a meditation. This is a very basic idea. It's a good idea. Later in the Bhagavatam, when Sukadev begins to speak, in the beginning of the second canto, who is the mentor of Sutta, who is speaking now, from whom he heard the Bhagavatam, um, Sukadev will speak about this kind of poetic, universal kind of form of, of God as the first step in meditation upon the idea uh, of uh, the Godhead as uh, uh, as personal and uh, as being uh, consciousness, the consciousness behind matter and so forth. So at any rate, the balance of this chapter after this point, the verse tonight that we're going to discuss, speaks about the fruit, the result of doing what we just did, discussing this avatar tattva, the, tat, the truth about the nature of God's descent, in brief, which led us to understand here that Krishna is the fountainhead. Krishna conception is the fountainhead of the different types of avatars, different types of manifestations of divinity, the heart, so to speak. So, to the balance of the chapter, some distinguish, the, the, the Sutta wants to distinguish carefully for his listeners yeah, this uh, subtle and a, and a more crude material, nonetheless, meditation on God or idea of the form of God from the actual spiritual consciousness, um, satchidananda form, if sat, being, enduring being, it means, um, chit, knowing, cognizance, ananda, ecstasy or loving could be condensed. This is the idea. If it could be condensed into a form, hmm? <laughs> it would it would it would do a couple of things. First of all, it would be condensed Satchitananda. Not any less of a manifestation of eternity uh, or being knowledge and ecstasy would not be a less lesser but a more mm, profound um, expression in two ways condensed just like if you get con- you know condensed uh, whatever orange juice or something like that you have to dilute it with water it's more orange hmm, than than the undiluted you know in a sense um so it's more. Hmm? It's more in two ways. More in that it's condensed, and more in that it's more readily uh, accessible. Hmm? Because the kind of abstract idea of Satchitananda is a little bit hard to get a handle on. But if you could walk up and talk to Satchitananda, that is the idea. So this is the idea of Krishna. Ishvara, Paramakrishna, Satchitananda, Rupina. This is the beginning of Gopal Tapani. I think it uh, must be uh, Brahma Samhita says it in a similar way. Anadidaru Govinda Sarvakarana Karanam. These ideas, these, uh, so, you know, eternity or being, knowledge, ecstasy, personified. Hmm? Not personified by way of a mental personifying of something. But actually, uh, in, in a concentrated form, mm-hmm. 
and it's a little hard maybe to come to grips with or understand, but think about it like this. As units of consciousness, ourselves, if we turn ourselves towards matter, what happens? Think about it. If we invest ourselves in matter, what happens? The basic constituents of matter take a shape. They are the basic, you know, matter is just out there, right? And then has shapes that it takes. And consciousness is causing those shapes. This is the Vedic idea. In other words, the tree is a shape of matter, but it's a consciousness-driven shape. The plant consciousness, the Atman, similarly with our body, it's a shape. It's made of the same basic stuff, right? That the tree is made of. But Again, it's being shaped. The form is shaped around consciousness. When we invest ourselves in matter, let's say a a conscious subjective idea, we have an idea, a business, an organic farm is my idea. So it's in the subjective realm of consciousness. And then we invest that idea, that subjective idea, in the objective world of matter, and matter starts to take shape. Hmm? Land is acquired, it's cleared, seeds are planted, there's a harvest, and so forth. Hmm? So, point being is that when consciousness invests itself in matter, matter takes a shape, right? Now, if consciousness should invest itself in itself, why not a consciousness shape? Shapes, giving shape to consciousness. And a world, this is Plato's idea. Plato actually thought, and this is the founding father of Western philosophy, um, he actually thought that there are mathematical truths and concepts that exist in a non-physical world hmm, of forms, right? the forms, and that those that world informs our world, the physical world, which is the lesser world. The real essences, the forms, are in a non-physical world that has no physical location. So there's a world with no physical location. So this is, <laughs> this is uh, uh, Robert Penrose, who's a famous, famous um, scientist who's authored books with Stephen Hawking, for example, about the nature of the world, existent, well, the, the physical world, the natural world, and so forth. It's written about consciousness also from a, from a quantum perspective. He's one of those few handful who have found uh, room within, um, based on data, hmm, for the idea that consciousness may be causal hmm? rather than being caused by matter, maybe maybe primary, hmm? as, as we say, and so forth. Um, so, the idea then of consciousness forms, it's, it, it's not that foreign 
of an idea the founding father of Western philosophy believed with that and and if we look back to to him we may get be able to refuel an intellectual exercise that's running on empty Western philosophy it's running on empty he might revert back to him to get a little fuel and then as far as Western idea goes, we might question how far west is Plato from the east. Not too far physically, and not too far conceptually, either with his world of forms hmm, that informs our world, that are non-material. It's interesting. So, um, as they say, the balance of the chapter seeks to... um, keep us on track here about these avatars, that they're spiritual. There is a material way of kind of looking at the world as the shape of God, and that's useful and so forth. But the avatars that he's talked about thus far are different. This is a different idea. They are forms actually constituted of such. They take shape, and they may be visible to the naked eye. That's extraordinary. Hmm? But how well they'll be understood for what they are, will be dependent upon that I being decorated with prem, with the salve of prem, of love. Hmm? Um, You know, here we are, we're all in the same room, we're all looking at the same things, but we're all seeing them differently. Hmm? So, someone looks at the deity and sees a statue, someone sees Chaitanya Mahaprabhu or Krishna, and some see Krishna, and Krishna speaks to them. Hmm? So, um, it takes a spiritual eye to see. This is the eye of bhakti. This is the, so. There's a spiritual methodology for the mystic experience, which is the experience of the self and the beginning of first-hand of experience of the really far-reaching possibilities that lie within consciousness. Hmm? Unexplored, scientifically, if they, even if they could be, uh, possibilities within consciousness. There will be a secular, there is now a secular idea of mysticism, secular mysticism, I would call it, um, wherein there is an acknowledgement of the the mystical states and experiences of the mystics, hmm, uh, as a valid, rich, and positively transformative experience, the ego-effacing experience that gives one access to the, to the, to the uh, consciousness that lies, um, uh, precedes all thought, something like that. Hmm. Um, but, they would like to, the secular mystic then, would like to explain what that experience is in secular terminology, thinking that the mystics of the past were burdened in their attempt to explain their experience by religious concepts and lack of information about the nature of the world. It's interesting. So, uh, uh, of course, 
The problem is, or one of the problems is, that there are no secular mystics yet. Not the likes of Rumi or Christ or Chaitanya. We're waiting for the secular mystic to make his or her appearance. Hmm? And furthermore, a secular explanation, they would say, in other words, the mystics, they had this experience, but they didn't really know what it was. They thought it was a God experience. They thought it was they were experiencing the supernatural. They thought they were experiencing that that they were eternal. Hmm? Uh, they thought different ideas like this, and of course, secular thinker thinks we know that's not true. This is of course, of course the false, unfalsifiable premise on which secularism is based. Hmm? Because, as I said, I think the other day we can't we. Have, they have not been able to demonstrate their premise that consciousness is a natural phenomenon rather than a supernatural phenomenon. It hasn't been demonstrated. You can theorize about it and you can believe in it. And that will be your religion. <laughs> and you will have your dogma about it and your whatever. So, furthermore also, uh, no, so as far no really purely secular methodology for arriving about at the mystic experience of the, the of, of consciousness, the consciousness that underlies all thought and so forth. There's no, there, there is a God machine in Canada that a fellow has put together that you can plug into and you're supposed to get the experience, but people don't always get it, <laughs> if at all. Hmm? In other words, he thinks that by this, you plug into this and it arranges the brain in such a way that you get the mystic experience finished. Hmm? But those who have actually had this transformative experience, even briefly, and I don't mean through through it uh, through drugs, which might be some drugs might give a similar kind of experience, but through a actual religious based methodology, hmm? like yoga bhakti, vedanta, and so forth. They have this experience, and it's not, um, I want to say, delusional, like a kind of similar hallucinogenic experience um, might be. And and it conforms also, for that matter, with a, a good body of texts, in the scriptural canon that describe the nature of it and and so forth, and it's a consistent experience, also. Hmm? The hallucinogenic experience induced by drugs is not a consistent, necessarily, experience. In other words, whether, whatever frame of mind you go into it with, that's what you'll start to hallucinate about, hmm? usually, hmm? Uh, or often. So, it's a, it, it is a different, uh, it is categorically different. This is the, the idea of... of um, the uh, yoga school and the Vedanta and so forth, and um, and uh, and again they offer methodologies for this. So there's not a secular methodology that's been able to really consistently bring about this type of um, experience. So mm-hmm. that it's a supernatural experience. There's as much reason to believe that, although we can't. If I say, I went into trance, I had a supernatural experience, it corresponds with Rumi's experience, with Chaitanya's experience, with the Christ's experience, with the text, and so forth, and I describe it as such, and so forth. 
I cannot demonstrate to you in a laboratory that what I experienced is real. But then again, if it's supernatural, then it wouldn't be possible anyway. That's the whole, that's the whole point of the supernatural. It's transcendent to the natural world, so don't expect it to appear in a world that seeks to confine it and, and define it and explain it just based on physical uh, principles, laws of nature, and so forth. No, it transcends the laws of nature. This is the premise. Yeah, granted, it's a premise that's not falsifiable, but how? <laughs> neither is the naturalistic or physicalist idea a, about consciousness being material a falsifiable idea. So we have your religion, we have ours, is, um, is the idea. And, oh, so far the idea of explaining the experience in more poetic language and so forth, I don't necessarily think that that explains it any less than explaining it in some type of um, secular or mathematical language to whatever extent it could be. These are different languages, poetry and math, for example. Math is a descriptive language that lends itself to controlling things. Poetry is a participatory language that seeks to describe the more of things than what meets the eye. It speaks about possibilities that don't we don't find with the senses. In poetry, in other words, the moon can have wings and fly across the sky. So, of course, we know that that's not really what happens, don't we? Or do we? <laughs> we... This is the this is this is of course a very interesting philosophical question, and and dependent dependent on your persuasion, you will say yes we know definitely not or maybe that better explains what we see every day. Maybe that better explains because it it it, it that whole way of talking about life enables us to participate in it more as part of it rather than separating us from it with the idea of controlling it and being the masters of it and it and it being um, subservient to us to use for our human-centric and what the hell is that? Purposes in the whole scheme of things. What made that the best way to look at things, the best way that everything should be used for the purpose of? Hmm? Do the trees agree? Do the animals agree? Do they have a voice? Hmm? Uh, well, some people would say no, obviously. And that's becoming problematic. Hmm? That idea is becoming problematic. The trees are, are echoing back. I don't like that. Hmm? And through their friends, their friends are speaking out. Hmm? The natural atmosphere is saying, leave my trees alone. Hmm? Don't deforest. It's causing problems, making me uncomfortable. I'm going to just belch, and you'll be finished if you're not <laughs> careful. It's a big global whatever warming or something like that. I mean, so these these um, there's problems involved with that approach. Uh, so we are of a spiritual bent of mind here, and it's a reasonable. Um, um, 
worldview and very reasonable with regard to exploring the subject of consciousness, which, as we've heard here so far with regard to the avatars, the idea is that the source of ourselves, the fire that we are the spark of, has a shape, has a purpose. It's, 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 it's constituted of being, knowing, and loving, and it bees and it knows for the purpose of loving. In other words, it has a purpose. Its purpose is loving, which means it has no purpose. Because what? Purpose means reason, right? It has a reason. And love knows no reason. Love is, is not unreasonable, but it picks up where reason leaves off. Of course, this is a wise love. It's a reasonable love. The idea is reasonable that existence has a purpose, and its purpose is love. It's a no-purpose purpose. So the center, the Godhead, this is its purpose, the love. And it bees means it exists, it has an existential component, and it knows for the purpose of loving, tasting, experiencing joy. So its existential and cognitive features are subservient to its purpose. Again, we talked about the Absolute in terms of the phases, Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagavan, the being phase, the knowing phase, the ecstasy or the loving phase. And we, 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 we reasoned well that something could be but not be cognizant of its existence. If you have a cognizant existence, however, it has to be. But it doesn't have to be ecstatic or loving or joyful. But if existence at its heart is joyful and loving, then it has to be, to be joyful, it has to exist, then it has to be cognizant also. Hmm? So the, the bliss side or part or component of the Absolute, the loving component, hmm, automatically includes with it, in it by necessity a, a knowing component and a being component. Hmm? This is then the Bhagwan, the loving, the knowing, the Paramatma, and the being, Brahman. Hmm? And here we've been hearing about Bhagwan hmm, and about the purpose of Bhagwan which is in the form of the avatara, to cross from the conscious world to the unconscious. Matter is like the unconscious life of the conscious and spiritual alive reality. Again, it's the greater world, the tripad vibhuti, that informs the unconscious world. If the unconscious world would only listen, and it does so in the Bhagwat theology by descending into the world in the form of different avatars to tell us about all these things, to exemplify these things. It's very interesting. So we've heard about this avatar tattva, and this in the context of the Bhagwat 
teaching us the position of Krishna as the fountainhead, as the Bhagwan Swayam, the independent um, Godhead whose dependent manifestations are the avatars and who is the full face of ecstasy, of Ananda, which is the, the central you know, focus or aspect of Bhagwan, the full face of that. So we implied in that there are lesser faces of that, even beyond the avatar. Avatar means descending within the world, in the paravyum, in that greater world, the world of consciousness. There are other manifestations of Bhagawan, of ecstasy. Krishna is the full one, the heart of that. And we find him depicted as involved in romantic love, which is like, wow, that's the full face of love. Hmm? Something like that. It means that the greatest possibility of loving, which is a reciprocal affair hmm, with the Absolute, is found in the Krishna conception of the Absolute. So the fountainhead then of all loving manifestations of divinity of Bhagavan that are, are centers on which we could focus ourselves and thereby experience the fullness of love. We focus our loving propensity, if you will, on things that aren't capable of reciprocating, things that are here today and gone tomorrow. That's problematic. Focus it there, then it can find fulfillment. Prabhupada used to like to say that our capacity to love expands like a beam of light. How far? You know, the star... It's a beam of light. How far? The implication, so far. Hmm? It needs to repose itself in something very extraordinary then. Our capacity for love uh, as a unit of consciousness is great. It needs a great um, object, if you will, and a it needs an object, a subjective object, <laughs> a consciousness object, a concentration of Satchitananda. If we are to love, then there has to be another. If we are to experience, there has to be another. There's a duality. But this is a duality that is a non-dual duality because both the subject and the object are consciousness, not matter. They're of the same nature. When we repose ourselves in matter, we're reposing ourselves in something that's it's constitutionally different from us. It's not consciousness. It's unconscious. We repose or invest ourselves in it, and it seems to take a life. Right? The car starts to drive. It becomes a life because we're inside. We're the life, but it never really does. So now we're talking about moving away from that and the false identity arrived at from from investing ourselves in material things and the attachments that accrue from that, our attachments, our our desires, uh, our our inform our sense of I. We're kind of made out of our attachments. I'm attached to California, so I'm Californian, or whatever may be the case. So we're moving away from that kind of conventional ego, self-centered sense of self that can't be maintained. And we are investing ourselves in ourselves, in consciousness, and we are the spark. So 
invest ourselves in the spark. We, we, we find we are of a likeness to our source, the fire, but there's a fine difference between us as well. There's a difference between the spark and the fire. Hmm? There's a, I want to say, not a qualitative difference entirely. It's of the same quality, but the quantitative difference. Hmm? So, a greater concentration of satchit, ananda, we call it ladini, sandini, samvit, hmm? a greater concentration. Uh, or the satchit ananda bhagavan, the ladini, samvit, sandini of, of bhakti, uh, which is the ingress of which, by, by which we can make that investment in the world of consciousness. So, there is an object there, but the object is spiritual like we are. It's consciousness like we are. So there is a non-duality. Hmm? At the same time, there's a duality. What do we call that? Oneness and difference, which is, seems inconceivable to us. How can it be one and different at the same time? How can it be a duality and a non-duality at the same time? Mahaprabhu says, Achintya Veda Veda. Understand? Bed, abed. Difference, non-difference. Achintya. At the same time. Huh? Well, that doesn't compute. But we're talking about it in a way that kind of can be understood, but it can be experienced by a transrational method. That's what spiritual practice is about. So, interesting ideas. Hmm? This is what we've heard about. Now again, we're talking about it a little differently, some similar themes, but a little differently, playing out. And the fall verse here, the fruit verse says what? That if we do this, what we just did, hmm? and what we have been doing the last few days, discussing the Avatar Tattva, it says, Janmaguyam Bhagavato Yaitad Prayato Nara. It says, if we do this, and it uses a nice word, prayato. Prayato means carefully. It means with great attention. It means with a controlled mind. An attentive mind. Must be a controlled mind. That's not easy to do, is it? To control the mind. It sounds simple. Sit and focus your mind on your breath. It sounds like a simple thing to do. When very difficult to do for any period of time. I've given the devotees a suggestion. We have the beads for chanting, then we have beads for counting, how many times we go on the beads. And we say, you know, go this many times around and count each one. And I've told them, get another set and count while you're chanting how many times thoughts took you somewhere else. You need a longer string there of those beads. The stream of thought will come, the flow of thought, and we should watch it, listen to the name, hmm? and not enter the flow of thought, enter the flow of the name. And when we find ourselves that we have, we may watch the thought, come, let it go, and then we find, oh, I entered the flow, I'm over here, count that one, hmm? come back. Hmm? And this is a technique, uh, it's kind of a, it's a type of a technique, that can help us in to focus on the chanting attentively. Hmm? So the word here, attentive, hmm? carefully, 
and ultimately means with controlled mind. Hmm? One who hears about these things. So it's it means in a yogic context, in the context of a real serious spiritual discipline, if we hear about these things. It's not if we just hear about it, some story, and it's explained in academia. Here's the myth about this avatar or that avatar. Isn't Hinduism interesting? Hmm. And I mean, that's interesting too. I mean, on some level, I do appreciate that. But that's not what's being talked about here. The result that's being talked about here will not come from that kind of oral reception of these um, uh, poetic verses of the Bhagavatam describing the avatar, describing Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. With attention, we'll come to the conclusion, for that matter, of the tattva, the, the, the truth about avatattva being explained here, that truth being that Krishna is the fountainhead, because it could be studied and that might be not be understood. Attention means in a spiritual discipline, under good guidance, we hear the text. We hear it explained in great length from so many different angles. And how the word may go mean this and mean that and so forth. And it becomes absorbing. And so this kind of hearing... To play that out further, the verse says what? Sayam pratar grinon bhakta. It should be very carefully, very attentively heard and in the morning and the evening. So when you get up, before you go to bed. Hmm? Uh, and this then, whatever comes in between that should be affected by what you think about in the morning, what you contemplate in the morning. And then what you contemplate at night. At night you will contemplate the extent to which the time in between morning and evening you did not follow through with what you thought about in the morning. It was important. Hmm? Or that your mind took you aside and you account, oh, the ways in which I got distracted. I woke up in the morning with my spiritual resolve. I heard the Bhagavatam. Hmm? All these ideas... I chanted, hmm? and so forth. And then breakfast came, Prashad, then my duties, and then, my, then the evening, and I reflect back on, I hear these things again, I think, to what extent was the, were these ideas carried with me throughout the day, and formed my activities? How much did I connect those activities with what's being described here? Did I think, I'm shoveling the cow dung? Hmm? For what reason? Did I think, what am I doing? Shoveling cow dung. Is this a dignified occupation? I mean, I could be out there and the monk's mind will wander. Uh, you know, in IT, internet technology, I could be making good money and, and maybe or having an influence on the world. And the monk will think at first something like this. Of what consequence is my monastic life to the world? I mean, the real world. <laughs> But in time, if he or she gets absorbed, he will think of what consequence is the so-called real world to my monastic life, which has become alive within, rich with meaning, which has allowed me to look at the, the, the so-called real world, the physical world, with a different eye and understand and experience its interconnectedness hmm? in, in a way that enables me to be a steward of it that doesn't violate its own dignity. 
which allows me to live within it on its bounty and its grace in such a way that, that my, my own possibilities as a human being, a consciousness within a human dress, can be realized with the assistance of nature, which is what the mission, human mission is, to find the more that we sense our life is about, the more than what meets the eye, the more that we are as a unit of consciousness. So it says, morning and evening, and very carefully, one who hears this idea, as we have been hearing, then, and also why? Because, janma guhyam bhagavato, the janma, the birth of Bhagwan, or Bhagavato, the Godhead, is guhyam, is a mystery. We've been trying to explain logically, if you will, the mystery of it, kind of a spiritual logic. God is unborn. How is he taking birth? The avatar appears in the world. How can God take birth? How can there be a beginning? This thing has no beginning. It's How can God, uh, who's spiritual, have a form? How can a spiritual, and we tend to think spiritual, formless, ethereal, hmm? how could it have a form? It's a mystical, difficult to understand concept. With good guidance, it's not so hard to understand. We can get a handle on that and go with that. And we can make, we, we can develop a sense that this is credible. Faith can come from those who have faith. Faith means experience. Who has experience can talk about these things in a way that will promote faith, will make them believable to us, hmm? that will retire our necessity, our, our, uh, which will not retire, but put in place the, the fever of our intellect for knowing, arresting, conquering entirely. This is also a problem, as the senses are a problem. They draw us to the world of objects in pursuit of enduring happiness, only to have the objects change before our eyes, disappear, fall through our fingers. Hmm? We think, that's a false pursuit. Hmm? Enter the world of thoughts. The world of thought is largely tied to things. Hmm? And so, stop thought then. Hmm? Intellect is kind of a quiet voice behind the mind when the mind says, do this. Sometimes intellect says, might not be a good idea. Hmm? Something like that. Intellect is a fine substance in the Vedanta, but buddhi, intellect, is also something that if not harnessed, like the mind needs to be harnessed, like the senses need to be harnessed, Hmm? will cause us great harm. It will, it will, it will, it will, um, it will not allow faith to grow. Hmm? Intellect needs to be harnessed by a, by a person of faith. And faith means experience. Faith means absence of doubt. That's a kind of knowing then, isn't it? Because doubt is an unknowing. Hmm? An unknowing, unknowing by way of experience. You may not, you may not have the entire experience, but experience that consciousness is, um, for example, what the texts say, 
what the rishis say, deep experience. That person then can share their experience, their experience, they're sharing their faith or the clearing of their doubts, which comes from experience. Hmm? I've experienced the thing. The book said this. Now I've experienced the thing. So now we speak about it. That speaking is compelling. That can arrest our intellect, so to speak, for a moment and give faith a chance to grow. It's spoken of in logical language and so forth, but it goes into our head and it slips into the heart also. When the the head is arrested, then it can sneak into the heart. We guard our heart with our head. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't know about that. Could be. And then suddenly, mind stops. We're just drinking the whole talk, the whole discussion. I'm drinking that. I'm, yes, yes. After all, it's not talking about anything other than you. What you are. What your possibilities really are. Where they lie. In consciousness, not in matter. So it's friendly. It's it's comforting. Hmm? But un, unbridled intellect will not give that faith a chance to grow. Hmm? Intellect is a doubting function. So if everything has to answer to intellect, you will be suspended. Hmm? Doubt, suspicion leads to suspension. Hmm? If you have only, if you're using intellect only doubting, you can't go forward in any field. Hmm? The eternal fence sitter so to speak, something like that. So, to get off the fence, man, we need we need a good herd bull to kick us off the fence. Means a guru, a guide, hmm. pushes into the pasture. Eat. Hmm. <laughs> Don't sit on the fence thinking it could be good, might taste good. Looks like some clover over there. Maybe that. That would be tasty, but I don't know. I don't know. I've heard if you eat too much clover, you can get bloat. Cows can get bloat. Maybe not good. I've seen a bloated cow once. Meanwhile, you're just getting thinner and thinner sitting on that fence. Right? <laughs> the hurry bull has to come and just butt you into the pasture. Eat. Hmm? Taste it. Taste it. And you think... Maybe the pasture over there is greener. <laughs> All these cells. Uh, you're just getting thinner and thinner. So, no. So Bhagavatam says this is a mystical subject. This is a, this is a a, 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 a guiyam, a mysterious topic, avatar tattva. It has been explained, and if we hear it carefully with attention, which, which means if we hear it from good, from the guru parampara, hmm, then and regularly, every morning, every evening, something like that. Then, hmm, what's the fruit? Dukkha gramad vimuchate. Dukkha gramad vimuchate. Dukkha means, dukkha gramad means, from all misery, vimuchate. Vimuchate means, very much so, you will be freed. Not that it will free you from misery, but it will very much free you from misery. Hmm? What does it mean, very much? It means that not only you will you be freed from the misery of your karmic implications, 
ramifications from having taken. Now you are being chased by the environment who wants to take back. Hmm? Not only you'll be freed from that, but you'll be so freed from that. Be much. You'll be so freed from that that there will be no possibility of that ever recurring again. That impl- those implications. Hmm? Because why? Because you will enter into the world of consciousness of, of the avatar of, of Bhagwan. Hmm? You'll get a, you'll get a place there by hearing about this. This is like I've given an example. If you have some problem, so you dig a hole and put the problem inside the hole, cover it up. Hmm? Okay, you're free from the problem. Hmm? But it's possible, you know, with the shifting of the ground and so forth, that you, that garbage should start to come up again. So, uh, this idea is like Dhyan, Marg. You try to remove the problem, put it in the ground, bury it. Hmm? But the Bhakti Margus path is you put it in the ground, you bury it, and you build a temple on top of it. Hmm? And you do kirtan inside that temple for the deity and so forth. No chance of it ever coming up again. Hmm? Krishna says, going there from where the avatar comes hmm? to here for the purpose of taking us there. Hmm? There's no return. The sutras say, anabhatihi sabdhat, anabhatihi sabdhat. From no return, no return. Twice it says, no return, no return. Hmm? So go there. And for going, for home going, a home knowing person as required. Any question? Here we conclude this section on Avatar Tuttle. It'll be my last talk. Um, now I'm going to go to Poland in a day or two, so maybe we get together, we can have some questions and answers, but I don't want to proceed to the next section and then go away for a week. Question? Yeah, about this um, harnessing the buddhi and clearing doubt. Um, uh, Prabhupada said that one should not take sannyas if one is worried about one's maintenance. Um, So, should one just sit around and wait for such confidence to yeah, it, it's uh, it's um, it doesn't mean that if it means that if one has some concern for one's maintenance, then that's not a suitable uh, disposition for being a sannyasin. Mm-hmm. But it does not mean that one is not in a suitable position to cultivate that uh, dependence um, or that sense that uh, God is maintaining me. That cultivation of that idea is central to Sharanagati. And it can be done in different contexts. Even the householder will, will do that as well. But if one has a romantic kind of idea in a positive sense of being a renunciate, a sannyasin, then um, it's there's a there's a method for cultivating that. So it takes some 
some time. It means no fear or something like that. I have no fear. Uh, everything will work out. And ready to test that. So sometimes the Sanyasi gets in difficult situations. He gets excommunicated from a religious organization that he gave his whole life to or something like that for no good reason. <laughs> and he has to be on the street in his pajamas, as it would appear, uh, and figure out what to do, something <laughs> like that. He doesn't do anything different. It depends on Krishna. But depending on Krishna also uh, requires being resourceful. Like it said, God helps one who helps themselves. So it's not just I'm going to walk out and sit and just walk out and expect you know it's all going to work. And no, you have to be resourceful. Use your, intel- use your intelligence in the service of Krishna also. So uh, it takes a little time to become for the confidence and 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 also then there that one has to if one wants to pursue that one has to become comfortable in the pursuit of that in a situation where he or she is not in a position to provide for themselves hmm? and be comfortable with that. Some people are not comfortable with so They want to have money in their pocket and make things happen in, in a certain way. So they they want to have a family and so forth and they're the maintainer in a relative sense, much more than a monastic here in for example, in, in training to be a sannyasin is not engaged in maintaining themselves. They're they're working entirely for the mission and so forth, and they're maintaining Krishna, but you know, but uh, well, is Krishna's maintaining them? Yes. So they're working for the guru, and so and they're comfortable in that kind of situation. Hmm? Um, and so that's part then of being a sannyasi, because it's about being dependent. Hmm? Whereas someone may not be psychologically comfortable with that situation and they may want some sense of independence and being able to make decisions and uh, not that there's no place in that for monastics, there is. And as they become more dependent and comfortable with being dependent, then they can make decisions because the decisions that they will make will be decisions that are most likely in concert with what's going on in the, in the, in the mission, in the monastery and and they've learned that and so forth. So then some decision-making power is given to them because they won't make decisions that are independent of the interest of the mission. Mm-hmm. So someone may not be comfortable with that, so they may want to that be in that position. They want to maintain themselves and so forth. Baki's very generous, so there's uh, she goes with them. That's not a problem. Those people then who don't live in the monastery, they... they they have their independence, and they 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 maintain themselves to some extent. And you know they're cultivating the idea that Krishna is maintaining me too. And what they do is that they're ideally their disposable income. They use it for the mission, for printing books, for opening temples, for for going on taking their Fourth of July weekend holiday to go to the monastery and bring cookies, something like that, and do and pull weeds and. And so forth. I think I'm pulling the weeds out of my heart or misconceptions. So they do like that. And this is, this is how they um, apply the same principle. Does that help? All right. Is it time?
Sri Chaitanya Sangha ki jai, Gaur Bhakti Vrindu ki jai, Gaur Premanan ki jai.